You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, September 13th, 1862, a couple of guys were out in a field in Maryland and they looked down on the ground and on the ground under a locust tree was a bundle of cigars wrapped in a sheet of paper. So they bent down, they picked it up, and they took it back to the camp. Now those two guys were actually two Union soldiers fighting in Lincoln's army. And that piece of paper that they found wrapped around the cigars was actually the secret battle plans of General Robert E. Lee that his company had accidentally left behind the day before. Kind of a big deal. So they find this thing and they freak out, right? And they bring it to the camp and everybody's looking at it and it kind of works up the chain of command and it finally uh, arrives on the desk of General McClellan. McClellan gets this thing and I mean, he's just over the moon. He, in fact, he reads it and after he reads it, he exclaims, I love this quote, he says, here is a paper with which if I cannot whip Bobby Lee, I will be willing to go home. I love that he calls him Bobby, like they're just bros. That's great. Uh, now here was the problem. McClellan was historically a frustratingly cautious general. This is uh, one of the things that Lincoln hated about the guy. He just was so concerned about it being perfect and so skeptical of all the things that he, he was slow to make a move. He was slow to attack. And, and, and McClellan gets the note, reads it, and then waits a frustrating, excruciating 18 hours deliberating about what he should do. He was convinced that the army that this paper detailed was bigger than the paper said. He was sure of it. And even though he knew from the paper that the location of the army was only 12 miles from where they were at that moment from this battle plan, he was so sure that it was bigger than what the paper said, that he waits 18 hours and by the time he finally arranges his troops to battle, Lee has been tipped off, he rearranges his army and the moment's lost. The, the entire moment's wasted. They had a piece of paper that could literally have changed the war, ended it really that day, but because McClellan was too skeptical of the message and too slow to respond, he lost it as his advantage. He lost it. He had the enemy's plan literally in his hand, but he failed to act on it. Now, why am I telling you this? I'm telling you this because when I hear that story and then I read this story today, I feel all the same things in me. Uh, we are coming to a text today that is really, uh, it's, it's the crucial turning point, maybe in the Bible, certainly in Genesis. This is a hinge on which everything turns in your Bible and in human existence. This is Genesis 3. It's the fall of mankind. It doesn't, you can't overstate what this moment is. There is no greater disaster that has happened in human history than what takes place in this chapter. No genocide, no, no holocaust, no world war. This is as bad as it gets. Adam and Eve, our first parents, rebel against the living God. They disobey him, they run from him. Humanity's cursed, they're removed from God's presence, removed from the garden, and, and the earth is literally cracking under the weight of their rebellion. Everything straight is now bent. Everything that is at peace is now at war. I mean, the whole earth is in an uproar and it all takes place over the course of six verses. The six verses that we're in today. 
every sorrow you have ever experienced, every loss that you've ever felt, every wrong you've ever committed and then went back and regretted, all have their genesis in Genesis 3. They all start right here. This is a huge moment. And what we're going to see in these six verses today is not just a a report about what happened. We are going to see that and what unfolds. But it's more than that. What we're looking at today are the battle plans of our enemy. We're getting to just stare him in the face, where the troops are located, where, what his tactics are, how he plans to invade, what he's going to do to conquer. That, we are staring at that news today, and the question in front of us today is really the same as was in front of McClellan. Will we be skeptical and slow to respond, or will we act on what we see? Are we going to act on what we see here? Because the words that we're looking at, they are a gift to us this morning. I want you to feel that. They are a gift to us to win the battle. And I don't know about you, but I want to win the battle. Do you want to win the battle with me? We want to win. And so we're going to stare at this paper. And, and by God's grace, we're not going to be slow to respond. We're going to act on what we see. So we're going to look today at the tactics of the tempter. That's what we're doing. We're going to see what, uh, the, here's, here's what we're going to catch really early on. That in every temptation, there are always two goals. And you can write this down because this is going to frame the morning for us. There are two goals in every temptation. To get us to resist God and then to get us to replace God. To get us to resist him. That I would grow skeptical that he's actually up for my good. I don't buy it. I don't think you are God. And so I move away from you. We resist him. And then to replace him, that I convince myself that I could do a better job than him at being God. There is not a sin in your life that doesn't follow this pattern. So I want us to learn how it happens because if we can learn how it happens, if we can learn the tactics he uses to get us to resist him and then replace him, then we can resist him. Satan and live happily under God's rule and I want that for us so uh, that's where we're heading if you have your Bible get it out we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3 we're going to be starting in verse 1 you can look at it with me but uh, before we get into the minutiae of the tactics we need to take a second to address uh, the uh, tactician here we there's a new character in our story that shows up on the scene kind of out of nowhere and we got to learn something about who this guy is so the the story opens like this in Genesis 3 come out of Genesis 2 verse 1 of Genesis 3 and it says this now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made now admittedly uh, there's not a ton here about this being we get a title He's called the serpent here. Uh, but if you're, if you're getting your full theology of this character in, uh, just out of Genesis 3, you're not going to have a ton to work with. He sort of shows up. His presence is presumed. We know some stuff from it, but, but you're going to have to get out of Genesis 3 and go look around in Scripture to, to sort of develop a theology of this guy. And, and let me just tell you, as you're looking around, uh, when you're perusing your Old Testament, you're not going to find much. Uh, the, the, the Old Testament in particular is largely silent on him. He shows up in a, a couple places. He'll show up at Job's tempting. He'll show up in a couple of the, uh, the prophecy books. But uh, he, he's largely 
uh, kind of absentee in the Old Testament. And in fact, most of what we know about the serpent from the Bible is from the New Testament. And most of what we know about the serpent from the New Testament is from the weird parts of the New Testament, right? It's from Revelation. That's, that's where we get a lot of our theology about who this guy is. And in Revelation, uh, we read this about him in Revelation 12, verse 9. It says this. This is a prophecy of John. Uh, about the end times. It says this, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the, the, we get insight into who this serpent is. He has a name now, apparently, and his name is Satan, which can be translated as adversary. And he's called the devil, which means slanderous or slanderers. And, and he says uh, right here in verse 9 that he deceives the whole world. That's one of his jobs. It's one of the things he's up to. Verse 10 tells us that he's the accuser of all Christians. Verse 17 tells us that he makes war on the children of God. There's a handful of more details happening in the book of Revelation. There's some uh, other sprinklings about him throughout the New Testament. You get some statements in Peter. You get some statements in the gospel. But other than that, that's kind of it. That's kind of it. We don't, we don't know a ton. That's, that's my point. And we don't know a ton about him because the Bible doesn't say a ton about him. And this is a point worth making. So let me just say this real quick and we'll move on. Uh, biblical real estate matters. What I mean by that is uh, what gets the most real estate in your Bible should get the most attention from you. So we, we have to have a developed understanding of Satan and demons and the demonic realm. We, we need to develop that understanding. Yes, we do, but we don't want to live there. Why? Because the Bible doesn't live there. The Bible gives priority to certain things, and it doesn't give priority to other things. And I think it's a great lesson for us in how to navigate our theology. What has the most real estate in the Bible should have the most real estate in our theology, our thought life, our practice, our intention, our focus, what, what gets the most real estate is what matters. Now, it's not that he doesn't matter, it's just that he takes up less space here. Much more important to the Bible is what our hearts do with the lies he tells us. That is everywhere in your Bible. You, you can't find a page of scripture without that going on. And so it's, it's really important we focus there. Satan is important, but knowing how to deal with our sinful hearts is much more important, according to this book. Does that make sense? Is that fair? Okay, so with that in mind, here are a couple things that we can say about Satan from Genesis 3. Uh, and I think these things are going to be uh, helpful to us as we make our way forward. Uh, here's the first thing. Satan is strategic. He is strategic. Uh, the text calls him crafty here. That word could be translated as shrewd or prudent. It's not a good or a bad word. It just depends on how you deploy your shrewdness or prudence, right? And he deploys it poorly. But what we know about him is this. He's thoughtful in what he does. Paul calls him in uh, 2 Corinthians full of cunning. He's shrewd. He has cunning. That means that, here's what it means. It means that we should prepare to experience temptation as something that is thoughtful and careful and artful and subtle and not something that is obvious and clumsy and clunky. That's not how he works. The text tells us from the jump, this guy, whoever he is, is crafty, right? 
Uh, forgive the, the crassness of this example, but men, you will likely not wake up tomorrow and hear a voice say, you should go rape someone. You won't hear that. Why? Because it's absurd. If you heard that, you would think, no, I, no, of course I'm not going to do that. That is horrible, right? But do you understand that that little pornography addiction that you have on the side is walking its way into that being possible. Of course, it doesn't feel like that, but Satan is shrewd. He's not going to take us from A to Z. He goes A, B, C, gets us comfortable, and then we wind up where we need to go in his eyes. You will never go from great marriage to divorce. It just won't happen. That's not how he works. He's more shrewd than that. He takes a, a slower, more crafty path. You go from great marriage to, I gotta stay at the office late, to, gosh, we just don't have time to connect, to, I'm gonna keep that one to myself, to, I keep going to bed angry, but it's okay, we'll work it out, to, we need to focus on the kids, to 20 years later, and we haven't spoken to each other, we've just been parents, and now I don't know this person. That's how he does it, because he's not clumsy, he's not clunky, he's subtle, artful, thoughtful, crafty, this is who he is, he's strategic. Number two, he's not scary. He can be scary, I'll grant you that, but he's not, notice this story's weird. Uh, Eve is just chatting with him, just chatting with the Lord of Darkness, no big. I just chopped it up with a snake. You know, that's just what we do around here. She's not freaking out. She's not running. She is engaging in thoughtful conversation with the prince of evil, right? This is just how, how it is. It feels normal and comfortable to her. And I'm pointing this out because if I said to you that tonight at, I don't know, 9 p.m., the Lord of Darkness would visit your house and lure you away from the living God. How would you imagine that scene unfolding? Right, you're at your house, it's nine, a bell tolls somewhere, you don't even have a bell, but it's tolling, right? And, and, and all of a sudden, the, the lights, they flicker out in the house, the, the windows start rattling, there's like thunder outside, the, the door creaks open even though it was locked, some guy's playing an organ in the corner, you're like, how'd this guy get in here? Guy slinks in, you know, with a cape, and he looks at you with bloodshot eyes, and he says, do evil things, <laughs> right? I mean, that's terrifying. Is that what this is? That is not this, guys. She's just, just chatting, just sipping a little coffee. Just what do you think about the life? You know, this is, that's what's happening here. My point is, he's not scary. He doesn't come scary. Someone needs to hear this. Something can be evil and not feel evil. Something can be evil and not feel that way at all. It can feel, it's not in Satan's best interest to freak you out. That's not helpful to his case. He, scary isn't attractive. You know what's attractive? Reasonable. Reasonable's attractive. Intelligence attractive. Uh, rational's attractive. Normal's attractive. Scary, not attractive. He can't get anything done with scary. And that's because it can be evil and not feel evil. We have to watch out. We have to be careful as so a Christian. Be on your alert for the ordinary, for reasonable, for, oh yeah, that makes sense.
because that's how he works. He's strategic and he's not scary. That's, what, that's two things that we see here that are crucial for us to understand about this being called Satan. Now what is his strategy with Eve? We've talked about who he is, but what does he do? How does he get us where he wants to get us? We, we said earlier that his two main objectives are what? To uh, get us to resist God and then to get us to replace God. Well, how does he accomplish this? Well, it's interesting. If you look at the text, the first thing Satan does to achieve his goal isn't to do what we would think he would do. It isn't to tell some blatant, on-the-nose lie to us, and it isn't to pluck the fruit from the tree and kind of wave it in front of us and waft the, the smell of it to us. He's not doing any of the things we would think would be tempting to us. What is the first thing he does? The very first thing he does to get us to resist God and then to replace him is to make God feel distant. To make God feel distant. He said to the woman, did God actually say? So stop right here because this is very easy to miss. History lesson. Genesis 1. We meet our, our primary character of the Bible. His name is God, Elohim, and he is the great creator of the cosmos. He makes everything. He is over it all. I mean, he's, he's speaking sun, moons, and stars into existence. I mean, this is amazing. He's this big, lofty, up there God. He's creator God. He's Elohim. He is God. It says it just a dozens of times in chapter one. When you turn the page and get to chapter two, verse four, something changes. The camera lens, Rodney has talked about this, camera lens was panned wide and we were seeing his creation of the whole universe and all that. But, uh, chapter two comes and the camera pans tight all of a sudden and now we're getting the creation, not of the universe, but we're getting the creation of mankind. And when the creation of mankind is the focus, something happens, his name changes. All of a sudden, for the first time, a new word's introduced, and it's not Elohim this time, it's not God, it is Yahweh. It is Lord. The Lord God, in the day he made the heavens and the earth. The Lord God made man. The Lord God planted the garden. Eleven times in chapter two, this new term is introduced. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. Do you know what that word is? That is God's personal name. It's not his title. It's not like doctor. It is my name, the Lord, Yahweh. It is, it is his covenant name. It's the name that he gives to people who are in relationship with him. It would be like you only knowing me as Mr. Needham, right? And then uh, we got to be friends and I said, hey, just look, just call me Jimmy. Why? Because that's my name and we're on that level. Just call me Jimmy. That's what God is doing in Genesis chapter two. He's, he's stepping out of just creator God, epic God up here, and he's saying, let me tell you my personal name. As he begins to make and fashion Adam and Eve, he says, hey, we don't have the same thing that I have with the cattle. We are in covenant now. So you call me by my name. My name is Yahweh. We're in relationship. It, it, it's covenant. It's intimacy. It's nearness. That's what this is. And Satan says, did God actually say? It's the first time the pattern of Yahweh, 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 Yahweh has been broken. Genesis chapter three. Did God actually say? He drops the name. Do you see it? He knows something. 
He knows rebellion can't happen where there's intimacy. And so that's the first thing I got to get rid of. You can't think he's near. Because if you feel him near, if there's intimacy there, you're not going to rebel against him. No, we're not talking about Yahweh. We're talking about God. We're talking about Eve. I'm coming to you to talk to you about that deity out there in the sky. That, that big cosmic bureaucrat out there with all that red tape, just always putting those borders around you, God. Yahweh, no, 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 no. He's, it's that guy out there. It is, it is hard to sin against a friend. It is easy to sin against a bureaucrat, right? And that's exactly what Satan's doing. He takes out the personal, relational, covenantal sentiment between Eve and God, and he just says, no, he's just a deity. He's not the Lord to you. Rebellion can't happen where there's intimacy, and he knows it, and he undermines it. First thing, we are four words in to Satan's speech, but this may be the biggest takeaway for us today. Christian, you fight for intimacy with your God. It's the first thing Satan will attack. We have to preach to ourselves the truth about his nearness. We need to do what Psalm 16, 8 says. I say it all the time up here. It's one of my favorite verses. David says, I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. I love that image. I'm putting you right here. I'm going to remember you are right here. It says God spoke to Moses like a man speaks to his friend. We need intimacy if we want to resist resisting. We need intimacy. So Christian, you fight. You, think, you wonder why we just beat that drum of like read scripture and pray a lot. You think it's just because we're legalists? No, it's because we know relationship is formed there. And where there's relationship, there will not be sin. Keep relationship close. Keep intimacy with your God close. It's your best and first defense against temptation. Does that make sense? It's so important. So now God, you see, He's now the great bureaucrat in the sky. That's, that's who he is. Disconnected from Eve, and now the rest of Satan's work can begin. He said to the woman, did God actually say we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden? Oh, I'm sorry, I read the part. Uh, did God actually say oh, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So he plays the dumb card. He plays the I don't know what. what I, I thought I overheard something. C can you help clarify for me, Eve? Did God actually say you shall not eat of... Any tree of the so he, and listen to what he does. He plays the I'm dumb card, and then he, he question, his questions start by highlighting what? The restriction. Did God say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, did God say that uh, there was a restriction, that they shouldn't do something? Yes. Was that the first thing he said? No, not on your life. The first thing he said was a positive command, not a negative command. The first thing he says, you, you may eat freely of any tree of the garden. Remember that? That's the first thing he said, but he doesn't start there because remember, God's a, he's a bureaucrat. He's stingy. No, no, he opens with the restriction. Did God say you shouldn't eat of any tree in the garden? By the way, he didn't say any tree in the garden, right? He's already subtly undermining the truth of God's command. It wasn't any tree. Now, Eve picks up on this, but he knows that she would. She's falling right into the trap. She's playing the game with him because she responds 
by correcting him. And the woman said to the serpent, we, no, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Okay, Eve, good job. This looks promising, except, uh-oh, you misquoted him. Because that's not what God said either, is it? Did God say we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden? No. God said we may eat freely of the fruit of the trees in the garden. You may surely eat. In the Hebrew, to emphasize something, you would not italicize it or put an adverb with it, you would repeat it. So the, the Hebrew reads something more like, you may eat, eat. God looked at Adam and Eve in his first command to them, and his command was this. Kids, you have a ball out there. That was his first command. You eat freely. You go nuts, you crazy, kooky kids. Hey, you see those striped things over there? Try that. It tastes like marshmallow. You don't even know what it is yet, but it's amazing. That's, that's his command. Eat freely. Eat, eat. And then the restriction. But she's already diminishing his generosity. And listen, temptation will always shrink God's generosity. That's what's happening here. It will always make him look stingy, make him look like he's just holding out. He has a lot more to give, but he's just not giving. And don't we feel that in the moments of temptation? Gosh, if I could only have, gosh, why is he keeping me from all this good, right? This is how we talk to ourselves. And, and even when we have that self-talk and we're consoling ourselves about true things about God, we, we, it feels so shrunken. Uh, no, I, I know. I know, Jesus can satisfy my heart. I know he can, right? This is how we talk when our friend's trying to like help us in the moment of temptation. He can satisfy my heart. He, he, what? He, he is going to blow the lid off your heart. His presence outstrips every temptation, right? But this is how we talk. This is how we talk in the moment of temptation. Oh, I know. No, following him's better. I know, that's better. What is that? That's how... He, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Psalm 63, three. You preach that to yourself. God, I would rather die with your love than live without it. That's how generous you are with your presence and your affection in my life. So I have everything I need. The Bible tells me so. I, I have you. What more could I ask for? He is not stingy, but in the moment of temptation, it sure feels like he is because temptation always shrinks God's generosity. And Christian, it's your job to tell your heart the truth. My God is for my good. And he is abundantly for my good. So it shrinks God's generosity, but it does a third thing. It expands his restriction. Eve goes on, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. A couple of huge things just happened. First off, neither shall you touch it? What is that, she's just making up stuff now. I mean, it was just like, no, he told me I can't eat it, I can't touch it, I can't smell it, I can't do anything. Did, did, did God say you can't touch the tree? No, he said, you shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? That was the command. Touch it, go nuts, right? Build a, build a swing set on it. Do a tree house. We can do a fort, you and Adam, it'd be really special. Just don't eat 
the fruit. That was the command. But she expands that command. She, she grows it. All of a sudden, it's bigger than it was before. The restriction is larger. And here's the second thing. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Wait, is that what God said? Again, you gotta pay attention to this. This is, this is so subtle and so huge. Again, look at this tampering of the word that's happening. God didn't say, in the day you eat of it, you will die. What did he say? He said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Now, in American English, surely doesn't pack quite, of a, a, quite, quite a punch. But in the Hebrew, it's doing something very similar to the eat freely moment. There's an emphatic word included in this that would translate the Hebrew literally to say something like this. For in the day you eat of it, dying you will die. You will die, die. That's what God said. But she waters it down. She turns down the volume on it and Satan sees his opportunity, right? She just gave him an inch and he's about to take a mile. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. You will surely not die. This is the first time, I don't know if you caught it, uh, in our story that he has outright denied God's word. To this point, it's just been subtleties, questions, suggestions. Here's the first outright denial of God's word. And isn't it interesting that the first outright denial in scripture, the very first heresy in human history is the denial of judgment. I find that so interesting because when I look around today in 2022, I see it all the time. So many of our churches, Christian churches, and other religions around the world and country are abandoning the doctrine of judgment and hell because how could a good God act that way? It seems so inappropriate. It seems so beneath him. It seems so Cro-Magnon and archaic. It's as old as the first lie in the Bible. You shall surely not die. That's not going to happen. And let me just say this, because we got a lot of Christians in the room, and we can maybe feel like we're off the hook, like, man, those guys are a mess, but we, we believe in us some hell around here, right? <laughs> can I say this? I don't care how saved you are, Paul says, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. Christian, if you sow sin, death will come. I don't know another way to say it. It's not like I've got my, like, my go to heaven card and now I'm all good. Now sin has no effect on me anymore. It's amazing. I'm just, I'm saved and everything's great. I'm just gonna do what I, the New Testament wouldn't exist if that were true. Every single letter is looking at Christians going, Flee sin, it will kill you. It will ki there is, sin only knows how to do one thing, and it's kill, and it doesn't care if you're saved or not. It will kill you. It will kill your marriage, and your friendships, and your job, and your reputation. Sin kills, it's what it does. I'm not saying you can lose your salvation. Don't, don't build a theology off of what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, sin has an effect, 
and it's not positive in your life, it will ruin and erode all the things you love. So don't play the I'm okay because I'm in Camp Jesus now. It doesn't work like that. It will destroy you. And man, we tell ourselves all sort of lies to soothe ourselves, don't we? Oh, the fallout won't be that bad. People get divorced all the time, their kids turn out fine. One more sip is not going to kill me, okay? One more bite is not gonna kill me. Hey, no one has to find out about us. What is all that, Christian? What is all that? That is us siding with Satan that there is no judgment. That is what that is. And it's offensive to God. And it should break your heart. We know that sin always kills because we have eyes and we can keep reading. And you only have to read a few more verses to find out that this is true because Adam and Eve are about to lose everything. They lose their place in the gardens. They lose the, the, the presence of God in their midst. They lose that. They eventually will lose their lives. Everything is lost in the end in just a handful of more verses. But it all starts with these tiny, subtle, little no big deal, suggestive, hey, did God say moments. Where God is made to feel distant from us, uh, he's the bureaucrat up there, where his generosity shrinks, his restrictions expand, his judgments are denied. I can't trust this God. I mean, he's, who, who is, I can't trust him. And if you can't trust him, you will resist him. And once you resist him, the only thing left is for you to replace him. And so Satan plays his final card. Verse five. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve. God is power hungry. It pains me to say it, but he is. Look at how controlling he's being of you. I mean, just look around. Look at how, look at how micromanaging this guy is. I mean, we're talking about a fruit, Eve. How petty can you be? I, I don't know if that's too far. I'm just, what I'm saying is he sees you as a threat. I mean, can you imagine you with your eyes fully opened, what you would be like? <laughs> Eve, you would be, you'd be unstoppable. You would be wise. You'd be like God. And he's terrified of that, Eve. And he doesn't want it to happen. And so he's stopping you from taking it. So take it, Eve. Take it. Satan isn't offering Eve the fruit. Satan is offering Eve the throne. And in every temptation in your life, every one of them, it is not the object of your desire that Satan wants you to grab. You need to hear this, this is big. We have a messed up view of how sin works. It's not the object Satan is interested in you grabbing, it is the throne 
behind that object. He does not care if you're cheating on your husband or cheating on a quiz. Doesn't matter. All he cares is that you grab onto an attitude that says, what does he know? And why is he keeping this from me? And who does he think he is? And I, I know what's good for me. And, and am I just having to wait here on God? No, I'm going to go get what's mine. That's all he wants from you. Who cares about the fruit? You grab the throne behind it. Do you know what the great irony is here of what Satan offered him? We're already like God. That's the crazy thing. He offers Eve to be like God, but Genesis 1 said we're made in the image of God. We're already like, this is like, this is like a guy trying to sell me my own car. It's, it doesn't make I already have it. Why would I buy that from you? But, but it doesn't really matter how absurd it is because Eve buys the car. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, I got needs, don't I? Were you gonna keep me from my needs? And that it was a delight to the eyes. Why, why would you hoard something so beautiful? I, are you selfish? Why would you do that? And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. He doesn't want me to live to my full potential. I could be so much, I could be so much. Now I'm under his thumb. She took of the fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her that passive man, and he ate. And what Eve and Adam grabbed that day was not the fruit, it was a throne. If we resist him, we will replace him. That's how it happens every time. And look, some of us struggle with this. We struggle with the doctrine of sin. More than that, we struggle with the doctrine of hell. How could it be? that there would be a place of eternal conscious torment and suffering called hell for, for just people who sin. Just people who, okay, so we sin. A big, that's for, hell forever? If you feel that, slow yourself because it means you have an inadequate view of sin. Here's the reality. We are not just people who sin. We are people who spend all our lives doing all we can to peel our Lord from his throne so we can sit there in judgment over him. That's not just sin. That's mutiny. That's high treason. And that punishment fits that crime. That's how you need to think about sin and hell. It's not just doing a little bad stuff. It is hating you on that throne up there and wanting to be there instead and acting like I am, doing my best God impersonation for 78 years till I die. Oh, that we would have a more developed view of sin and hell. Oh, that we would feel the arrogance of what sin is and rebellion. It is so 
arrogant. It is so selfish. We resist him, then we replace him. The great crime of Genesis 3 is not man eating fruit. It is man becoming God. That's the great crime of Genesis 3. It's not about that tree. It's about I want to be you. I want to be God. And isn't it just like God, if that is the crime, that he would find the most baffling, unusual, stark, beautiful way to turn the whole thing on its head. Because if, if the crime is man becoming God, then God makes the remedy God becoming man to fix it. And I find this staggeringly beautiful, don't you? That 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, God himself would come to earth, that he would humble himself like that, that, that a man who was truly God would show up on the scene and that Paul would tell us, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped but humbled himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is your God, the God that would become man while we are men groping to become God. This is who your God is, church. This is not man trying to become God. This is God humbling himself to be a man. This wasn't him fighting for his rights. He gave up all of his rights for us. This is not him clinging to his comfort. He gave up all of his comfort and crawled up on a Roman cross for you and I. This is our God, this is who Jesus is. And can I tell you the truth? There are some wonderful principles in this text. And I hope they help you so much of how to navigate the shrewdness of our enemy. I, I hope that they're helpful to you to resist temptation. But principles will not fix your biggest problem. If you think they will, you're wrong. They won't fix it. Because our biggest problem is a heart that wants that throne and no good advice or tips are gonna fix that. And what Jesus came to do on the cross was to purchase for you a new heart that when we look at the throne now, we say, yes, glory and honor and praise and majesty belong to our God, not me. You stay right where you are. That's where you deserve to be. I am a nothing and a no one, but you died for me, and so I'll spend my life at the foot of that throne. That's where I belong, and I love it. I'll soak up every minute. That's a new heart, people. That's not just me changing my behavior to avoid some temptation so I don't ruin my marriage or life. We need new hearts, yeah? We need new hearts, and that's what Jesus came to do. And if you haven't grabbed onto Jesus, you can throw all of the principles you want at yourself, and you won't change. And if you're not seeing change, though you're doing this, it may be worth asking, do I have a heart that's new? Do I have a heart that loves him on the throne? Or am I just living to crawl up on it? Oh, how we need to repent. And oh, how we need a new heart. And oh, that God is so ready to give it to us. 
if we'll just humble ourselves and ask, thank you, God, that you would correct this by becoming man and then not grabbing for what you deserve, but instead laying down your life so that we would see that you truly are God and worthy of our affection, yeah? He's a good God, and he can rescue us from temptation, but not just at our hands, at our heart. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. This is a heavy passage, and it's a horrible scene, and yet you have somehow miraculously, 2,000 years ago, turned it into something amazing because you have told the greatest redemptive story that could ever be told, and you have made yourself look stunning in the process. That's, that's all you've ever been about, God. You've, you've just been about shining the bright light on your son, Jesus, so that we would see him as the humble servant king that he is, and we would delight to bow before him. And God, we are so sorry that in every temptation, what we're really doing is we're trying to grab your throne. I'm so sorry for how many times I crawled up on your throne today, this morning, and little thoughts in my heart. Oh God, please help us. And please forgive us. And I pray for people in this room who have not cast themselves on you, have not trusted you, Jesus, and what you've done for them. I pray for them right now that you give them the boldness to flee the tempter, the liar, the manipulator, and run to you, Jesus. Run to you. I pray that you'd give them the courage to do that by your spirit and that they would see that you are their only hope. The God-man. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And we ask you to to warm our hearts now as we sing to you. You are worth every one of these words and these songs. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.